Hi there. This is Only a Game's Karen Given. Last week, we held a live virtual event on sports, racism, and the myth of meritocracy. Our three guests, Amira Rose Davis, Derek Z. Jackson, and Russell Dinkins, answered your questions about systemic racism and sports. As a podcast bonus, here's the audio recording of that event. It's been lightly edited to clean up some technical issues, but just be aware that the audio quality isn't quite what you'd normally hear on Only a Game. Nevertheless, the conversation was important, and we wanted to share it with you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Only a Game Presents Sports, Racism, and the Myth of Meritocracy. I'm Only a Game's executive producer and interim host, Karen Given. I want to say right up at the front that we're very sad that Only a Game is ending its 27-year career at the end of September, but we're really excited to be with you right now one last time to delve more deeply into this very important topic. And we really want you to be part of this conversation. Submit your questions at slide slido.com using the event code only a game. That's all one word, all lowercase, only a game. We've already received some great questions and we'll try to get to as many as we can. You can also go to the YouTube live chat to talk to others who are watching along with us. And a quick note that you can also subscribe to the WBUR City Space YouTube channel to get notified anytime WBUR releases a new video. Video. And you can also click the bell icon next to the subscribe button if you want to be notified whenever we go live. So back in June, following the killing of George Floyd, conversations about systemic racism really ramped up. And we at Only a Game started talking more about this popular myth that sports is a level playing field, that it's a functional pathway for upward social mobility. We called up Dr. Amira Rose Davis, and this was her reaction. <laughs> It makes me laugh. It really does. Only because we cling to the myth of meritocracy so much, despite all evidence to the contrary. Set. It's really easy to look at the starting line of a 100 meter race and feel like everybody has an equitable chance. I think that's really seductive. But we know that the person at the one position might have better spikes, might have better grips, might have had a lifetime of access to resources that have conditioned them to be where they are. And the person next to them might just be there on raw talent. Sport is of this world and our world is deeply, deeply inequitable. And that's just the facts. I'm joined by Dr. Amira Rose Just the Facts Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State. She's also the co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down, and a regular guest on Only a Game. Hi, Amira Rose. Hi. Also, Russell Dinkins, he's an educational and athletic consultant and a Princeton track alum. He also wrote the widely shared medium post, Brown University. If you were actually serious about racial justice, you would not be cutting the men's track team. Hi, Russell. 
Hey, how you doing? And Derek Z. Jackson, contributor to ESPN's The Undefeated, which explores the intersection of race, sports, and culture. He was also a longtime columnist for the Boston Globe and former scoutmaster for Only a Game producer Martin Kessler, who's still working on his journalism merit badge. Hi, hi Derek. Hi, Karen. That's great you out in, out in Martin. <laughs> So, Derek, you, Martin, and I had a couple of very deep conversations before we even began gathering interviews for this special episode. And one of the first things you said to us was that athletics has become a bucket that allows white people to feel good about allowing black people to participate. And I'm wondering if you can just explain that a little. Sure. From a historical perspective, the, the mythology, let's take Jackie Robinson in baseball. People talk about him breaking the color barrier. And uh, that was 1947. And Rosa Parks, it was eight years later that she, they, the Montgomery bus boycott was happening. We didn't get the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, till the 1960s. And so that's one historical example. Uh, another one would be Tiger Woods, you know, when he won the Masters. And all the headlines in the media was that Tiger Woods broke barriers. Tiger Woods shatters barriers. And I'm like, why does America have those barriers in the first place? So studies show that white families are more likely to view participation in sports as its own reward, something to help their kids get exercise and learn teamwork and leadership skills, while black families are more likely to see sports as a means to an end. Derek pointed out when we spoke to him about this that this disparity is likely because black families know their children won't have the same opportunities as white children. Russell, what were you taught from a young age about the importance of sports, and what did you make of that? Yes, yeah, so from a young age, I was uh, presented uh, the idea that sport could be a pathway to an elite education, or just an education, uh, uh, just uh, more, more broadly. And uh, my experience with that is because my youth track team really did send a lot of kids to college. Like it just, it was really proficient at doing that. I think track and field. Is one uh, is a little bit different than some other sports in that the barrier to entry is just so much lower than a lot of other sports. I mean, it's really cheap to participate in track. We used to fundraise for our, our competitions by literally having bucket drives where we would have buckets next to uh, popular intersections and we would just have our signs with our coaches and we would gather money and we would be able to do that for a few weekends and pay for a 15-passenger van to go down to North Carolina and run. I mean, so you wouldn't be able to do that in other sports. Would other sports have really prohibitive costs. Um, outside of my experience with track and field, though, I would say the popular kind of idea was that you could play football or basketball, but that wasn't something that I ever latched onto because I was with a track program that I saw examples of every single year, kids graduating out of the program and going to college. And so I just knew it. I just stuck with the program and ran pretty well and made sure that my grades were tight. And that was another thing that our coach really stressed. He really wanted us to have really good grades. And so I was really fortunate that I was in a program that stressed the importance of both academics and also athletic excellence. 
So uh, not every sport is as cheap as track. And this story starts with access to youth sports. Over the past few decades, there's been a defunding of youth sports across the country and expensive club teams have come in to fill the void. Club teams can cost thousands of dollars a year. We interviewed a man named Otto Lowey who played soccer as a kid in Atlanta, but his mother couldn't afford the fees for Otto's traveling team. So Otto's coach offered an arrangement. Can we play that clip? From eighth grade on to my senior year, me and my mom would paint soccer fields pretty much Friday night prior to the Saturday-Sunday games. So that's like about about six or seven fields. Just me and her, because that was the only way I was going to be able to play. Amira Rose, what are the consequences of the youth sports system as it currently functions in the U.S.? How does it actually exacerbate racial inequities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you see in that clip the barriers to access as youth sports has turned to a club sports model that requires um, not just uh, entry fees to get into the sport, but it requires like personal resources, a car to drive to away meets, a, a parent who's available during that time. And one of the things that we've seen is the sports that have experienced the most growth at the youth level, um, field hockey, soccer, uh, lacrosse, winter sports, like ice skating. Um, we've seen huge disparities in terms of uh, access via class. Um, and because class and race in this country are so intertwined, it's also exasperated the racial differences that we see. Moreover, one of the things that happens uh, is going connecting kind of to the points that Derek and Russell made is that there are certain sports that are also presented as the the ticket out or the ones that black kids are supposed to play um, track basketball football and so what that means is when you do have some programs that might incentivize or open up opportunities in these sports oftentimes they are very um, one track. Oriented, So there's a lot of programs that will help get access to basketball courts and refurbish those, except I use the Philadelphia example as a great example of this, where they had a row house and there's a long history of a black uh, crew culture in Philadelphia on the banks of the school where they have those regattas every Saturday. And they converted one of those historic boathouses into a basketball court on the banks of the school because it was seen as like, this is, if we're going to open up youth sports, it's going to be basketball in North Philly. And so I think that it's a kind of two sides of the same coin, but both of those effects, whether it's limiting the sports that people have access to or the high cost of entry to a lot of these sports has really constrained the amount of opportunities available to youth in this country to get a wide sporting experience. If you're just joining us, this is a live streamed only a game virtual event, sports, racism, and the myth of meritocracy. We're speaking with Amira Rose Davis, Russell Dinkins, and Derek Z. Jackson. And don't forget to submit your questions at slido.com using the event code only a game, all one word, all lowercase. I want to get to uh, one of those questions now. We're going to start talking more deeply about college sports. And as we do, we are in an absolutely fascinating moment right now. I've got two very similar questions from Brian and Nairi. I'll read Brian's question. I'd love to hear reactions and thoughts about what's happened this past week with college football players and how their voices have been co-opted by politicians. Amira, that seems right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> 
Yes, certainly. I am. Uh, I have um, <laughs> lots of thoughts, of course. <laughs> um, no, I mean, so first, just to the point of that question right off the bat. Yeah, it's very interesting to watch the mental gymnastics it takes to make logical sense out of this people who are often saying shut up and dribble, stay out of politics, whatever, now are saying, oh, we must listen to the voices of athletes. So it really kind of seems like you're fine with athletes talking if they're saying what you like to hear. But what we've seen over the past week in the collegiate level and really over the past few weeks is uh, mobilization by college athletes um, uh, about racial justice and inequity within um, college sports with health concerns and wellness, particularly in the idea of playing through COVID. Um, and and there's other kind of uh, feelings that they have packed into that that they are um, raising concerns about. And long before even this week, where we've actually seen movement in conferences disrupting their seasons, we've seen Black student athletes, Black college athletes, I should say, mobilize at USC, at Kansas State. You see individual athletes use that platform and realize that they have power in their labor. I have a piece out this week in the Washington Post that explains um, some of the history of this. It looks at um, similar movements in the 60s and 70s, and it also points to a key difference, is that when Black college football players, um, basketball players, Black cheerleaders, and Black women track stars in the 60s and 70s were trying to marshal their labor within college spaces to demand change using similar tactics, demands, boycotts, threats of boycotts, etc., it, it didn't really go anywhere, right? So one of the cases I talk about is in Syracuse, the, you know, the Syracuse 8 demand uh, that there was Black coaches hired along with a number of other things. And they dismissed all the players from the team and hired a Black coach. So that following season, there was no Black players and one Black coach. The difference here is that in the, in the um, last few decades, we have built a system of collegiate sports on the backs of uh, unpaid labor of these college athletes, predominantly Black and Brown athletes in revenue sports, but also the entire system is constructed like this. And so they're under the same restrictions. They are, the people who are getting rich off this system are not the ones laboring in it. And so when they seize their labor today, when they threaten to boycott today, and we saw flashes of this in 2015 with Mizzou, it shakes the whole system. And so that's one of the things that we're seeing that is actually new. It's very transformative. Um, and, and we're not even close to the end of this particular chapter of college athletic activism. So, uh, Derek, I know that you've been thinking a lot about how the pandemic affects all of these issues. And we have a question from Nairi. As conferences are deciding to continue for fall sports this semester, what are your thoughts on the athletes are safer at school stances? Does that sound like coded language to you? In my view, right now, most colleges should not even be entertaining anything on campus, period. So let me just take that off the table. I'd like to go back to what Amira said um, about the narrow uh, frames of uh, how you know, getting black kids involved in things. And I think another major aspect is even before that is the um, destruction, the one of the reasons black boys so deeply focused often on sports is because the opportunities for education have been, de have been eroded and destroyed uh, while they're in elementary school. There's studies that show that black boys uh, really lose interest in school beginning like fourth grade. So, um, so that, that one of the major results of that is a channeling 
uh, well, black kids, well, they don't, not, they're not going to value me to be an engineer. Or they're not going to value me to be a scientist. You know, kids are not dummies. And so they, they go for what society values. And um, they see on television that society values them as ball players. And so they pour their heart, soul, and intellect um, into those sports. Um, I hope, and turn back to college, is I really hope that, again, barring a, a little bit from a mirror, is that I hope it forces a, a much deeper examination of the exploitation of black athletes. We've got a situation where, uh, and she's, she's understating the point about uh, the revenues being on the, back, the, the backs of black players. Um, we've also have a situation where the colleges themselves play into the stereotypes of black men as uh, athletes um, in, the, in the sense that one out of every 168 white students on a college campus, on a Division I campus, is a scholarship athlete. The ratio of, I, I wish we had time to, I would just open a question and see what people would say. What's the ratio of black men on a college campus? Compared to that one of 168 white men, there are several campuses that play big time D1 football where black men, every other black man on campus is a scholarship athlete. And the ratio at many, many mega powers is one in two, one in three, one in four, one in five. And to me, that, all, all, by definition, speaks to a mentality by the college presidents and the whole system of college education that sends a very, very strong negative signal uh, that we value black men to be ball players more than anything else. Yeah, and we're going to talk a bit more about that, but I'm glad that you brought this up because it, it brings us to the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is whenever we talk about race and sports and racism and inequities, people always say, like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Look at college sports. The NCAA is clearly a pathway to education. I mean, that is what the NCAA tells us in PSAs like this one. It's not about where you were born. It's not about your gender. Or the color of your skin. Or whether you're rich, poor, or in the middle. No matter what you play, if you have the skill and drive to succeed in school and in sports, we'll provide the opportunity. So while it is true that the majority of college athletes, the ones that you see on TV, that would be football and basketball players, are black, the majority of all the recruited college athletes are white. And an even greater majority of those athletes come from middle to upper income families. There is also this stereotype stereotype that suggests that blacks only exist on college campuses because they are good at sports. Amira Rose, you interact with a lot of students at Penn State. What do you see as the consequence of that stereotype? One of the things that happens every semester, I teach a lot of race and sports class, gender and sexuality and sports, et cetera, et cetera, is that my black students who are not athletes always tell stories about how um, they are constantly asked what sport they play and watch their classmates' face fall when they say that they don't play any sports at all. And it sends the message to them that they are 
only presumed to be on this campus for their athletic ability, and you heard those numbers Derek just gave us, but it also sends a message to the athletes who understand that they are conditionally accepted on campus because they are athletes. And this, you know, obviously has history when we think about integration of predominantly white institutions. Um, you know, it was one of the first pipelines was through athletics that opened up. I recommend um, my friend Derek White's book, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, that looks at Black college football before integration kind of looks at this pipeline. But one of the other things that gets wrapped up in this is that the image of the school, um, many schools tell their myths, tell their foundational myths about their school through sports stories, through this kind of image of uh, you know, here at Penn State, we have the Wally Triplett story. We are Penn State. And it really fails to account for structural inequities. Um, going back to that that conversation of is that the coded language we're seeing about paternalism? Absolutely coded. And it is what the entire system is built off of. Um, you've heard multiple coaches parrot it this week. Urban Myers, Dabo um, did it, Nick Saban, that they're going to be safer here. And that is the foundation of the racket, right? That we are saving you and this is your pathway and therefore um you know be happy with what you get the education we are giving you so much um actually one of the quotes that set off the first iteration of this college athletic protest that i was speaking about before in the 60s and 70s was a coach from utep university of texas el paso at the time who said um yeah we have uh, a lot of racial slur and he was like they're just hungrier and They've done a lot for us, but we've done a lot for them too. And it's that sort of paternalism that has created the foundation for the entire system of college athletics as we know it. Victoria Jackson at uh, Arizona State University has a great piece um, where she basically argues that one of the things that this labor does besides, you know, balloon the pocket of executives and NCAA execs and presidents and athletic directors um, is it also subsidizes all of these other sports. And I think that uh, one of the things that Russell points to is that we need a real accounting of the entire system of college athletics and not that doesn't just predicate on revenue sports because even our understanding of what that means, softball, first of all, is the fastest growing revenue sport. We don't think about it or talk about it in the same way, but SEC softball, especially Pac-10, that, that, those ratings, those television numbers are raking in. There's a way that Title IX gets used as a shield to prevent a deep interrogation of these conversations like name, image, and likeness when it also benefit women athletes, particularly Black women athletes in Olympic sports who never get to cash in on their moment when it comes. And so I think that what we have here is a system, and even I said, I stumbled um, you know, a few minutes ago when I said student athletes, I try not to use that word, because we know historically that that word was created as a way to dodge liability. Uh, it was literally created to, to say, no, you can't have a lawsuit about workers' compensation claim because so many people were getting injured on the field and on the court. Um, and the architect of that word even said two decades later, yeah, that was a legal phrase. I don't know why we're running with it. And you saw with that PSA that not only are we running it with it, but we've embedded it into the bedrock of a system that people will justify over and over and over again by drawing a paternalism to say, look at the great education you got. What else were you going to do? This is a path. This is a saving grace. And that goes to, you know, the root of what so much we're talking about. Um, and, and as Derek and Russell so rightly pointed out, when this entire country has defunded education, has tied education to property values and then redlined properties, when we are existing within a system that is making it very hard to have upward mobility, um, then and, and then society says, well, your value is through entertainment, whether it's athletics or rapping, whatever. Um, it creates very, very small windows in which people have to maneuver. And that um, enables the system to continue 
like it has been. And yet it's a house of cards and we're seeing that because it, all it takes is somebody to say, hey, I'm not going to play. And we're watching it kind of crumble. Yeah, yeah. Russell, when you were at Princeton, were you and your fellow student athletes aware of the history of that term? We were not uh, aware of the history of that term. Um, the relationship that we have with athletics, though, in the Ivy League is a little bit different than other schools, admittedly, in that um, the Ivy League has a role, uh, barring any sort of athletic scholarship, to be granted. So all the students there were, you know, there uh, either paying tuition or on some sort of need-based aid. And so our kind of relationship with the idea of what it meant to be a student athlete is admittedly different. I do want to um, note that because we didn't necessarily felt, feel as if we we all felt a sense of duty to uh, perform for the school uh, and to uh, contribute to the team because we did get recruited by the institution, but we didn't feel as though our kind of placement in the school was contingent upon our performance. I did get some scholarship offers, and my mom and myself, we, we talked about it a lot. And frankly, we thought about it, okay, I'm getting a full ride from Princeton. You know, even if I get injured, I, can, I will still have that full ride at Princeton. And so uh, that is why... I didn't, you know, we decided to go that route. I do know that that is a very privileged position. <laughs> and, um, you know, most athletes uh, in high school who are looking at college opportunities are not about, are not considering the Ivy League versus scholarship institutions. So I, I do want to note that. And then I also, you know, want to kind of, you know, as we are talking about these issues, I know some of the other issues that are pertaining um, sports and college and you know, people are thinking about, okay, sports as providing a pathway. And a lot of research has shown that, you know, actually first-generation students are not getting into uh, these schools or participating in sports um, at the same level as they were even, you know, 10 years ago, 2010. Um, so a smaller percentage of the college athletes are first-generation. And for those who don't know, first-generation means you're the first in your family to attend a college. But I also think that we need to think more broadly about that term because, I mean, I kind of fit into that bucket, kind of, um, but I also don't. My mom did graduate from college, but... Um, she went to a community college and then went to a commuter college and then eventually finished a continuing education program. And that's great. Super proud of her. It was at her graduation. It was an amazing experience uh, to be there and I'm super proud of everything she's accomplished. At the same time, her experience was very different from going to a residential college experience and particularly a residential elite college experience. And so um, there are still some differences in terms of, um, you, know, uh, you know, experience. So, you know, even though there may not be you know, the same number of first-generation students going into colleges um, as athletes now, there may be people with similar experience who may not be classified as first-generation. And then the last thing I wanted to say was um, there's also something that we need to think about consider uh, called the uh, privileged poor. And, you know, there are people who, you know, may be first-generation or, you know, low-income, but they got into really good prep schools or they went into a really great magnet program. And so they were able to assume some of the cultural benefits of a middle-class lifestyle and that enabled them to be able to transition to college a little bit more easily. And so these are things that we should also be thinking about as we're having these conversations. Hmm. 
So how we talk about athletes has uh, huge consequences across all of society. Two sociologists recently published a study that looks at a decade's worth of NCAA men's basketball tournament broadcasts, and they found that even when you control for variables like height and scoring average, lighter-skinned and darker-skinned players are talked about differently. I spoke with one of the authors, Dr. Rashawn Ray, and he and I listened to a couple of clips from the tournament. Well, we've talked about Matt Howard and how crafty he is. Jim Shire is much the same way as a perimeter player. Knows how to use that height. So, crafty, you found that this is often a word used to describe white players, right? Yes, I mean, most definitely. I mean, this clip talked about two players. And then, interestingly, then talked about how this player supposedly uses their craftiness to actually do something physical. <laughs> I mean, this is the way it comes out for lighter-skinned players. If it was a darker-skinned player, they wouldn't have mentioned craftiness. Instead, they would have talked about their ability to jump up and get the rebound in some kind of physical way. And so here it is, the same action, something simple like jumping for a rebound. And all of a sudden, it completely transposes the way that players are talked about. Okay, so this is from a little later in that same broadcast. Here's how announcers described a black player. Here comes streaky, sneaky Willie Beasley. A terrific <laughs> offensive rebounder for his size. And he just weaseled his way to the basket and got that tip in. Weaseled out. It's, it's more animalistic, right? It has this criminal, sneaky element to it. And these are the ways that we hear darker-skinned players talked about in ways that we don't hear lighter-skinned players talked about. Derek, I saw you shaking your head there at that sneaky, weasley thing. Uh, so I'm just going to open the floor to you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I do a lot of columns on sports, uh, sportscaster stereotype. There was a moment where Larry Bird um, uh, was at the free throw line and Dick Stockton of CBS asked, is there any smarter man in the NBA today than this man? And I'm like, oh boy, uh, you know, it's just magic. There was just Kareem. There was Julius Irving, you know. And so that that was that that actually that single comment launched me into um, about 12 years of several columns at the Boston Globe. And then uh, doing a little bit more with the ESPN, the undefeated in more recent years uh, on these stereotypes. And it's really it's it was stark. And sadly, uh, it remains true today. And the bottom line is that black athletes exploit whatever they do on the court and on the field is described from the toes up. And everything a white athlete does is descri is described from the brain down. And the default, the default for why a white player does something great is the brain. And the default for why a black athlete does what he or she does is, um, is because they have natural, instinctive, unteachable, unlearnable skills that they were just born with. Whereas white athletes learn, craft their profession. And I think... The, the big reason this is a, 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 is, was and remains a huge issue, um, and we talked about this on one of your other shows, was that if, when you cr construct stereotypes so starkly different, uh, you create separate worlds for them after they're done playing. 
So I think the stereotypes of athletes while they're playing play very much into why the coaching ranks of all sport, of the pro basketball, college ba basketball, football, et cetera, why the coaching ranks are so disproportionately white when the athletes are so disproportionately black. And I also think that also has a massive spillover into the regular, just as Amira so eloquently talked about the stereotypes of black kids on college campuses, of the, the default assumption is that you're an athlete if you're a black, black male. The default in the regular world is that we are not as capable of doing the job in other professions and other careers. I'll close on this particular note. Uh, years, uh, I, was, uh, I wrote a piece um, years ago about uh, boarding a flight in Florida. And uh, two people ahead of me was a tall black man, and in between us was a white man. And the white man tapped the black guy um, on the back as we're boarding. He says, did you play basketball? And and I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> After the, whatever the black guy said, I didn't know what he said to him. But I asked the white guy, I said, why did you assume he was a basketball player? I says, he could have been an engineer. And so then it turned out that we, uh, when I, we boarded the flight, I was sat, sat next to the tall black man. So I said, hey, man, uh, what do you do for a living? I'm an engineer. And so then we talked about, and so we talked about, we just talked about um, stereotypes, life, and the notion that there isn't a black man alive in this country who hasn't been asked if they're an athlete. Russell, I'm going to send this question to you. It's from Robin. Do you think these stereotypes are perpetuated just as much in youth sports leagues? And what are the long-term effects of hearing this type of commentating on children? Oh, certainly, I believe it, uh, you know, it perpetuates, uh, you know, in youth sports leagues. And I, you know, do think that, you know, these issues have lasting impacts, you know, when you describe, you know, someone as uh, only being, you know, good or only being proficient um, due to, you know, innate physical abilities rather than, you know, their, you know, the, the work that they put in to train for um, a discipline or to study plays or to learn a different skill. You know, you don't know if that kid you know, spent uh, hours every night, you know, practicing free throws. One thing that I kind of just noticed, a lot of black kids, frankly, run distance in the AAU and USATF, which are two um, really big youth leagues uh, at the younger ages. But those same kids, for some reason, when you see them in high school, they're running sprints. And I, I, I cannot, I do not know what the answer to that is. The only thing is that their coaches change from their club coaches to the high school coaches. And the high school coaches get these black athletic kids, and they think, okay, we should put them in the sprints. And so, and this is like without fail. Like if you look at any of the results from the AAU or USATF Nationals, uh, and you look back a few years, and then you look back at the current years, you'll see a lot of those same athletes who are winning or breaking national records in the 1500, which is a, almost a mile, or the 3,000 meter race, which is almost two miles. You'll see them in high school running the 400, which is a quarter of a mile, which is considered a sprint. And so... It, even even those perceptions, uh, you know, kind of, you know, within, within the context of track and field, which is a sport that I intimately know, plays into how athletes are conceived in terms of what their, what their uh, abilities are. Even though these kids, you know, were very good at these longer distance events, 
somehow they end up in shorter distance events uh, because black kids are supposed to sprint and white kids are supposed to do distance. And that's what is just kind of commonly held. Um, that's just the commonly held view. And, uh, you know, that could be expanded out to other sports, you know, as well, uh, you know, in football, you know, uh, certain athletes may not be put in certain positions. They may be put in running back or wide receiver, but they might actually be the best person to be quarterback. But, you, you know, they may not be put in that position and, you know, similar uh, positions in other sports as well. So I definitely do think that it in impacts uh, what positions kids play and that impacts their psyche, that impacts how they conceive of themselves and what they think of themselves during, you know, there's playing years, but then also afterwards. Absolutely. Uh, Amira Rose, we have another question, and I think it's perfect from you. It's from India. How are these issues of race in sports scholarships connected to other issues of access in higher ed? If we dismantle the prohibitive costs, problem solved? <laughs> well, the, the issues of higher ed, I mean, do we have another hour? No, I'm, just, um, I'm not kidding. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that uh, what we're talking about here are structures. And um, I think that there's many issues in higher ed. I think one of the things that is an issue of continuity between what college athletes were saying in the 60s and what they're saying now is like, there is a terrible number of, of black and brown kids on campus. There's a terribly low number of black faculty on campus. Those things um, haven't changed much in, in the 50 years uh, since we've had this kind of revitalization. And so I think that, um, you know, when we talk about what's happening in college athletics, it's happening within the larger system of higher ed, which as, you know, Russell pointed to this, talking about first generation kids, is we know that there's so many barriers stacked, whether it is standardized testing, um, whether it is, you know, uh, the schools and the K-12 K type pipeline, which we've discussed a little bit, whether it's application fees. Um, that's We have a lot of studies, a lot of work that is done on the achievement gap, the concept of achievement gap in K-12, through and then it just kind of stops. We have programs like Upward Bound, TRIO programs federally funded, or these previously federally funded program, TRIO programs that, you know, are supposed to be the bridge to the space, and then a lot of them kind of disappear. And so we have an uh, uh, issue of access, but also of retention, also of making these spaces equitable. And that intersects um, not only with is compounded by issues of race, certainly, but also class, um, also gender, also ability, um, and I think that that is certainly, you know, it's not enough to have a conversation about reforming college athletics without talking about um, larger structures that are holding uh, higher education together um, as well. And so I think, I mean, and this is what, when we're talking about the way and why I think sports is useful, why I look at sports is because I think that it's, um, you know, both a, a mirror to society, but also a lot of times a driving force, it's a kind of experiment like a petri dish and what we're seeing right now for instance is a lot of schools that um you know right now at penn state like they're trying to dump forty thousand people back into our tiny little town and and it's kind of like a chicken and the egg scenario like you want all the students to come so you can justify having your revenue sports but 
it's implicating everybody. Like it's, it's, it's implicating the entire system. Um, and which is why you can't just have it as a singular conversation. Right. Um, and it's also why, you know, even in places that aren't operating the way like D1, uh, big schools are like Ivy league schools, like D3 schools, like small liberal arts schools, um, you'll see a lot of these issues still carry over into those spaces. And I think that actually putting them side by side allows us to see some of the ways that there's a possibility of maneuvering. So the example Russell gave about scholarships is one of these great examples. What happens when you put the way Ivy League uses athletic scholarships versus D1 uh, schools do? One of the things that you'll start seeing very clearly is there's a real difference in getting a scholarship that you know is fully guaranteed um, and won't change if you fracture your leg and become disposable to the institution um, versus getting a one-year renewable contract, essentially, in the form of a one-year scholarship that can be renewed. Um, and that was a law, you know, that was passed in the NCAA in 1973, coincidentally on the heels of this earlier kind of revolt that I spoke of. And so I think that it actually... Um, can be quite generative to think about this within larger structures that we're talking about because they're all kind of bound up together. We ought to remember, uh, even though it's not gonna to change tomorrow, is the United States is the only nation in the world that so grossly ties its academic mission to professionalized sports at D1 basketball and D1 football. Um, Auburn, Alabama, Clemson, LSU, they spend between 20 to 32 times more per football player, per football player, than, than an average student. So Amira's point is very well taken that I, I hope with March Madness having been canceled and with football on as well on its way to being canceled, um, that we take a look at the whole structures um, of, uh, of this sport where this, the salaries of coaches soared even during the the, reset, the recession of 2008-2009. So um, one other point I'd like to make before time runs out that goes again to something Amira said, very important. Uh, when she talked about paternalism in college sports, I think the number one ongoing aspect of paternalism in college sports is um, the graduation rates and uh, in which the uh, disparities of uh, for all that money I just talked about, um, most schools have uh, disparities between the black athletes and the white athletes that given the resources poured into these schools, uh, into these programs is unconscionable. If you're just joining us, this is a live streamed only a game virtual event on sports, racism, and the myth of meritocracy. We're speaking with Amira Rose Davis, Russell Dinkins, and Derek Z. Jackson. And I'm going to get one more Slido question in quickly before we try to talk about some things that might make this whole thing just a little bit better, maybe if we're lucky. Russell, I'm going to send this one to you. This is from Joseph. With the continuation of sports, do you think professional players missed an opportunity to boycott the remainder of their season? seasons to push for racial justice? That's a really interesting question. Um, yes, uh, in some ways, um, you know, I think, you know, as we saw, Colin Kaepernick um, has, you know, really started a national conversation um, with his, uh, with his protest in a way that, uh, you know, other 
athletes who were doing other things, uh, you know, weren't able to weren't able to generate the same level of conversation. It was just the the in your face nature of his activism. Um, but you know, when I when I think about athletes and activism, I, I have to give a shout. I'm thinking Mira, but like this um, to the uh, WNBA players. Absolutely. I mean, they have been the champions of of being committed really to um, using their platform and not just doing it as a one off, but being consistent and tying it also to some structural things that can be done. Um, and, and some tangible things that can be done. I know the um, Georgia-based uh, WNBA team uh, wearing um, T-shirts representing uh, the uh, challenger to the Republican senator's uh, election. Forgetting her name, uh, Loeffler, I believe. Kelly Loeffler. Um, she Yes, uh, she owns, uh, what, 49% or something of the team. And so this is a, just a wonderful kind of, you know, um, finger gesture, you know, in her face. And, you know, and I, and I think, you know, we kind of need to, lead by their examples. I mean, I kind of just would say um, to my friends all the time, you know, the w, uh, the football players, the NFL players, if they would have had Kaepernick, they would just sat on the field and just like spun the ball around. <laughs> you know, things would have happened. And so, um, I, um, to, so to answer the question, um, I do think we did miss a little bit of opportunity, but some of these athletes have such large platforms that they can create opportunities when they want. I mean, there was a really a powerful video that was made by the NFL where they, where they had all of the different players, um, including the uh, Super Bowl champion um, quarterback uh, from the Chiefs, uh, you know, talking about how they needed the NFL to basically commit themselves to saying Black Lives Matter. Um, and that was actually orchestrated um, in part by one of the NFL employees, which was a nice, um, you know, kind of show of solidarity and active defiance and also uh, activism and protest. So, yes, we did miss some of, you know, the Kaepernick-style um, displays, but a lot of these athletes who have millions of followers, who have large platforms, they can um, and should and should continue to use their platforms in creative ways to continue to bring issues to the fore because they have more power than they realize. I mean, I, I just imagine if the NBA and really the NFL, if they were as committed as the WNBA, I think we would see some structural change happening. And so um, I would really like to challenge some of them to think more critically about their role and their you know, position of privilege with their platform and how they can use it to leverage change. So we don't have a ton of time left, but I do want to try to talk about what a better system would look like. And it's pretty clear, not just from this conversation today, but from other conversations that we've had, that these problems are too large and too systemic for any quick fix. But what I'd like to ask each of you to do is to think of just one thing, one tangible thing that would have some sort of effect on something. Amira Rose, where would you start? First of all, I'm going to break all your rules that you just said. I just really <laughs> had to say off, off Russell's last point. I, I think yeah. it's important to know that that debate it, um, is, is a very long debate. Do you have a better platform by boycotting and seizing your labor or by you know, being on the medal stand and protesting. It was the debate they had when they were trying to boycott the 68 Olympics. And you even saw it now when Kyrie Irving and, and some people said, you know, should we play? Is it going to be a distraction? You had numerous WNBA players who aren't playing. You had Maya Morse who took off all of last year and dedicated herself and her attention and her resources to helping Jonathan Irons get out of prison and dealing with um, criminal justice reform. And so there's tactics, there's a range of tactics that was have always been employed. But I think that it's just a really, sorry, it's a really important question because a lot of it comes about what when are you given a platform? How does that become disposable? Where can you 
best work from? And I think that those questions aren't going to have answers, but that's why we see a range of it. But I think that, you know, I definitely wanted to, you know, not let the moment pass to say that there's many athletes who chose to sit out of their seasons. And one of the reasons is because sports and why I think this conversation is so important. And I'll transition into my answer is because there's, um, sport washing, right? The idea, when I said it, the, that first clip that you played about, it's seductive. It's really easy to get lost in the game. It's easy to get lost in the sport and in all the spectacle around it. And so I think that's why it's, um, you know, really important to have these debates about, you know, do we return? Because business as usual, sports as usual, you know, don't, doesn't really leave a lot of space for you to have these conversations. I talked to uh, a young woman who's dynamite at USC, Anna Cockrell, a track athlete, who's mobilizing black athletes there. And she said, because of COVID, we can do this because we've had time to stop and think for the first time in years. And the other ability of what happens when sports kind of go back in, to normal and all of a sudden the space and the time that we had on news programs to talk about protests and talk about inequities and talk about these platforms are taken up with highlights and what happened in the game and things like that. I mean, I think it's a really worthy conversation. And so that transitions into the other way I'm kind of sidestepping this question because I think it is bigger. <laughs> and I think one of the things that happens is with tangible solutions, they're band-aids to an open wound. And all of these things that we're talking about exist within sports because like I said off the top, it, they, sports exist within society. And so asking how we can solve racism in sports is tantamount to asking how we can solve racism point blank period. So I think for what I would offer um, is we might not be able to suture that wound individually, but a million band-aids is better than nothing. And so what, what I would recommend is take as a, a stock of where you are and what you can do. There's already so much work being done that is giving tangible solutions, whether it's youth sports programs that are opening up access and avenues for participation, whether it's people working with college athletes who are helping them mobilize, whether it's their Texas A&M just started the blueprint for black athletes there, um, whether it's professional you know, leagues like the WNBA and giving to the WNBA PA and they have face masks you can buy. All of those proceeds help them as a player's union. Um, better position themselves to do some of the um, tremendous work that Russell just noted that they were doing. And so I think one of the easiest band-aids that you yourself can apply is find who's doing the work and support it. If you find an avenue where work isn't being done, create it. And I think that that can take many forms. I have a podcast that said there's a hole in sports journalism. There's a hole in sports media that's not talking uh, with intersectional feminist views, not talking about these systems of powers in the way that we want to have deep conversations. So we created a podcast in order to fill that space. And I think that, that those are the types of things to support. Those are the types of, you know, marginalized sports journalists. There's women of color who've been covering the WNBA before the ratings shot up right now and everybody's in COVID trying to cover it and they can't even pronounce WNBA players' names. There is a whole group of people who have been on this beat. Support them. And I think that we too often try to answer that question by inventing the wheel when sometimes it's about finding what work is already being done and directing resources that we can do to it. And so I think that for me is one of the biggest, it's a small step, but it's, it's um, the biggest way that we can help some of the tangible initiatives already occurring. Awesome. Great. So Russell, uh, of the million band-aids, what's going to be your first? Well, for me, um, you know, kind of how I, you know, got brought into this conversation was really uh, regarding a school's, a university's decision to cut 
um, track and field, uh, which is a sport that's really dear to my heart. And so w one fix or one thing that I would want to change is that uh, all these institutions that offer varsity level sports, that they do not cut any of the sports that are the most diverse on their campus or are the most equitable in terms of the socioeconomic pathways that exist. So there's only really a few sports that, um, that do that, uh, basketball, football, track, lesser and more degree. Um, well, soccer should be accessible, is made artificially inaccessible in the U.S., um, but um, I do not think any of these uh, schools should be cutting any of these uh, sports. Now, schools don't typically cut football and basketball, but they do tend to cut track a lot. And so I think that they really need to think really deeply and critically. You know, maybe the NCAA needs to put, um, you know, some policy around that. And so that's what I would want to see, um, you know, done because, yeah, we have this myth of meritocracy, but one of the few sports that actually does offer a pathway, that shouldn't be closed off anywhere, no matter if it's a small institution or a large institution. Um, you know, those pathways that actually do afford kids from different backgrounds the ability to, uh, to get into school um, and just the way that you even get recruited from track and field. Track and field, you run a time or you throw, uh, you know, an implement. It goes to a national database, so you don't even need to go to an expensive tournament. That is unlike most of the other sports. And so, um, in my view, those type of sporting opportunities in colleges, if we are really committed to college as a pathway, as that PSA seems to suggest, then no higher education institution that offers athletics should be cutting the sports that offer those pathways. And what that looks like, um, you know, should be put into some sort of formal policy. All right. Uh, Derek, I know you have a bunch of ideas, but give me your top one. Yes. Uh, I would want the NCAA to factor in race um, into their graduation rate uh, assessments. So basically right now, a team has to maintain a 50% roughly graduation rate uh, to be eligible for the postseason. However, many, many schools skirt that rule with astronomical rates for the white players and under 50% uh, for black players. Um, and so what I want to see is two things. Uh, I, I, wanna, I would want schools to be banned from postseason play if they have a uh, chronic black graduation rates under 50% and B, chronic disparities of say 25 percentage points or more between the white players and the black players. Wow, and we should say there would be a lot of schools that would be excluded right now if that was Oh, the, you, 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 well just very briefly, no time's running out, the, the, the four teams that played for the, champion, the football championship when we still have sports, um, the, the disparity between on Clemson, uh, what the disparity for them was uh, uh, 30, 33 percentage points. The disparity at Ohio State was uh, also was uh, 20, uh, 27 percentage points. So uh, that's not acceptable. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave this conversation there. But before we go, I want to take just a moment to acknowledge once again that only a game is coming to an end at the end of September. 
And in many ways, we are incredibly grateful that we've been able to do the kind of work that we do for so very long. Um, I first came on the show as the technical director all the way back in 1996. And I'm pretty sure Jonathan Chang, our youngest producer, wasn't even born yet. Um, and all along, it felt like someone was going to notice that we were doing sports on public radio and they were going to pull the plug. And so the fact that we survived and thrived for 27 years is truly a cause for celebration. It's a testament to Bill Littlefield, whose vision and point of view and ability to rhyme guided us for 25 years. It's a testament to Gary Wallach, who's been with the show since day one. It's a testament to the 22 full and part-time employees who have joined us on this adventure over the past 27 years. And the fact that it's only been 22 of us in total, in nearly three decades, should give you a sense of how much we have all loved doing our jobs. Once someone gives you a job at only a game, you never leave. It's really a testament to you, our very loyal and very wonderful fans, who have brought us along on early morning drives to the hockey rink and on your Sunday long runs. You inspire us, and thank you. And thanks also to today's guests, Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Russell Dinkins, and Derek Z. Jackson. And thanks to you, the audience, for joining us on this live stream. Stay up to date with all of WBUR's live events at wbur.org slash cityspace and sign up for the CitySpace newsletter. Thanks and goodbye for now. Thanks so much for listening to the audio of our recent live virtual event. We'll be back in your podcast feed with our regular episode on Friday.